everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. Welcome, thank you for being here. This one is called The Carnage in Cumbria, uh, Derek Bird, written by Liam Bird. And Liam, who wrote this script to me, was like, dude, no relation. <laughs> Bird is a, uh, well, not uncommon surname, I suppose. And uh, Liam, not related to him. This is uh, a little bit of a different format today, I guess, because normally we'll like do some, well, we've got like the two main formats, the murdery ones, the heisty ones, uh, and this one is like a spree killing. So, I mean, I guess this is the thing. It's like, well, there's, there's murder, but it also doesn't quite feel like that traditional true crime format that this show apparently is. I don't know, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Let's just, we just do things that are uh, interesting or, well, I guess a little bit morbid. A little bit morbid, a lot morbid. It's a spree killer, Simon. What are you talking about? Anyway, let's just jump into it, shall we? Today's Casual Criminalist is a slightly different variety to most of our previous episodes. Oh, and sorry, if you're new here, welcome. Uh, The format of this show is Liam has written this for me. I have never read this before. We're going to explore it together. It's not going to be fun. Today's criminal, Derek Bird, was not your typical serial killer. He may not even even be considered a serial killer at all, depending on your definition. Derek Bird was a spree killer. I thought it would be best to mention this now, in case any viewers are less comfortable viewing an episode of this variety. I think, you know, true crime is one of the uh, very few YouTube channels where it's like, hey, if you don't want to watch this, that's okay. You've been warned. The Calm Before the Storm Cumbria, the northernmost of all of England's counties, is the home of this episode's harrowing tale. This ancient land is one not overrun by civilization, being one of the most sparsely populated areas of the entire United Kingdom. So sparse, its density is only 73.4 people per square kilometre. For comparison, the average number of people per square kilometre in Nottinghamshire and other England's counties is around 400. The economy here is built off of two main industries, farmers and nuclear power plants. These <laughs> things are extremely disparate. I just have to know. There's a friend of mine. I I live here in Prague, and he's an American guy, and he's from a place called Montana. And I always get the feeling that no one lives there. Like it's just that there's endless, endless emptiness. Uh, Montana pop, and I just want to know how England's sparsest populated county compares to like Montana per square kilometer. <laughs> it's crazy. It's 2.87 people per square kilometer is Montana, which is probably not even the least populated U.S. state. And compared to the least populated English county, has 73.4 people. There's no one in Montana. (laughs) What I'm trying to get across is that crime in this place is far from common. Yet somehow, over just two hours on Wednesday the 2nd of June 2010, this image of tranquility would be shattered. Derek Bird was born on Wednesday, the 27th of November, 1957, alongside his twin brother, David, to parents, Mary and Joseph. Really? <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I would say, what are the odds? But not entirely unbelievable. Do... To any of whom who haven't listened to Casual Criminalist before, you'll recognize this segment where we discuss Derek's childhood trauma in great detail. Well, sorry to disappoint you, not that it should, but Derek's childhood by all accounts was not traumatic. Derek attended local schools before proceeding to continue on to employment shortly after. Beyond calling his teacher mum, there does not appear to be any serious trauma he encountered until well after his 18th birthday. Is like calling teacher mum? Is that just something that everyone does? Because I, I, 
I'm not. I don't really have any recollection of a specific time that I've done that. But I've. I'm absolutely certain that at some point I did that. Either that, or I've watched so many or read so many things where it's just become a, like a false memory. But everyone does that, right? At some point. After leaving school, Derek began working as a joiner. Joiners are people who professionally join metal sheets together or wooden sheets. It's appropriate name for the job, then, isn't it? Really. After researching what exactly a joiner is, I have also discovered that you should not confuse a joiner with a carpenter. They seem to have some sort of unspoken rivalry, like Simon and people who tell Simon that he doesn't need every channel on YouTube. Well, I'm sorry, Liam, but those people are clearly wrong, aren't they? It's not every channel. It's like the, the Thanos memes that I don't understand about my collecting of YouTube channels is that apparently he's got some rings and the stones or gems or some the rings and then when he gets all these stones or rings or whatever he makes half the world end or some shit like that that i don't care about but i enjoy the memes as a joiner derek worked at the local sellafield nuclear power plant having moved in with his childhood sweetheart it appears they lived happily for about a decade before it all started going wrong before moving further one last match should be addressed derek never left cumbria his entire life as such, there is only one rule anybody who has seen Hot Fuzz knows it's that everybody and their mums pack in round here. On the 19th of November 1974, Derek was issued with a shotgun certificate with orch- which authorized him to purchase a 22 caliber rifle and a sound moderator. I had no idea that that was possible. I mean, I know you can get a you can get a 22 caliber gun, sure. I didn't realize you needed a shotgun certificate to acquire one of those. I just assumed that it would be a separate license. We're a bit weird with guns in the UK. Because you can have guns, like shotguns and little rifles and stuff like long guns, but you can't have, there's no handguns, there's no like crazy like AR-90s or whatever you Americans get up in arms about having or not being able to have or something. Um, yeah, we're just a bit weird with it, aren't we? The Sellafield Sacking In 1990, Derek's life was going well. He had a good job, a loving wife, and two sons. However, as anyone can tell you, good times never last forever. Oh, God. I live my life like this. I don't know. I used to be an optimist. I really did. This is (laughs) ready for an insight into Simon's... I don't know. I feel like this is one of the darkest parts of my mind. Is I used to be an optimist. I was like, everything's going to be great. Everything's going to work out awesome. And then, I don't know, I really enjoy my life. Like, I genuinely think that, not in a religious way, I'm an incredibly blessed person. And this statement, however, as anyone can tell you, good times never last, is now, now, I've become a pessimist. Because I have, like, so many things that I always wanted, and now, I'm like, oh my god, the only thing that can happen is that they could be taken away from me. And, oh my god, this is such a dark thought. But it is, I did become, did I, is this, I, I don't know. It feels like, I don't know, the darkest, like, this is a dark thought. You're like, oh my god, I became a pessimist, and now it's just like all this stuff can go away. All like, not like physical items, but like things that I have, and things that I enjoy doing. Like, yeah. Oh my god, it's so dark, it's scary. Because I have like a tight stomach now, just because of these words triggered me. As mentioned before, Derek was employed by Let's Quickly Move On, because as everyone knows, Liam, the good times can last forever and they always do. Shh. Derek was employed by nuclear, uh, Sellafield Nuclear Power Plant. Opened in 1956, Sellafield was the United Kingdom's first major nuclear power plant for commercial purposes. As with all semi or quasi nuclear locations, Sellafield has security around the clock. The United Kingdom goes so far with the security of nuclear sites that there is a specialist task force of the police focused on this. I have to say, I'd be kind of alarmed if there wasn't. 
if you've got nuclear shit and there's not a and you're a country and there's not a specific part of your police force or law enforcement that is dedicated to looking after that nuclear stuff which is probably some of the most dangerous shit you do i'll be like yo you need to create that asap fun fact if you've ever been on the road and you've passed by a convoy of maybe 10 to 20 vehicles flashing orange lights but without playing any sirens you're probably just passed by radioactive materials now fact boy you may find yourself asking well why is any of this relevance i wasn't actually because i was just really enjoying it because i don't know this is all like i'm learning what a joiner is i'm learning about nuclear power no one's been killed i'm having a great time i'm telling stories about my except my my internal dread well in july of 1990 derek was accused of theft of a single plank of wood not a truckload not classified radioactive material but a single plank on top of this he was charged with handling stolen goods by the crown prosecution service and was prosecuted at carlisle crown court oh my god guys are you taking this too far or what he stole a plank of wood it's probably about two quid now, to anybody who does not understand the legal system of England and Wales, the Crown Court is meant to only be there to try the most serious crimes, the murders, the kidnappings, the maple syrup heists. Call back to a previous episode there. This case would not have gone to court if not for the fact the bird was employed at a nuclear power plant. Well, at least we can be sure that Derek wasn't overly punished, right? Well, not. He, oh my god, I get the feeling that is sarcasm. But how? This guy he stole a plank of wood and okay people are well it points to his moral character you know it's a slippery slope he steals that one plank of wood and the next thing you know he's selling like uranium to iran and it's like no <laughs> don't be ridiculous it's a plank of wood it's a big difference not exactly derek received a 12-month suspended sentence for the crime that meant that if he was found guilty of any more crimes in the preceding six months then he would find himself serving a year in jail this sounds reasonable until you realize that something as simple as a speeding ticket can trigger a suspended sentence it doesn't sound reasonable a 12-month suspended sentence i get the fact you're not going to prison but it also means that you're now a convicted criminal it's going to affect your ability to get a job and all of this because you stole a bit of wood holy what are you talking about unfortunately for our intrepid antagonist things only went downhill from here later that same year derek's wife left him not much else has been written about this period in derek's life but we do know that this was the point when he first crossed paths paths with kevin commons a family law solicitor who would soon become the bird family solicitor the next time derek appears on our radar is 1998 when the police were summoned to his address showing uh, following a domestic violence incident no formal complaint was made and no information was forthcoming so unfortunately we have little detail as to who this was between due to the lack of details included within the police reports however and through my limited experience in the area i'm personally of the belief that this was an incident between derek and his twin more often than not sibling violence does not lead to formal complaints this incident would prove to be a dark indication of what was to come though okay so the police showed up because someone called the police because there was a fight and they were both like no i'm not gonna press charges because he's my brother we were just having a fight okay fair enough one year later we find derek again on our radar having graduated from theft and potential domestic violence he had now moved to the big leagues is domestic violence when you have a fight with your brother i mean i guess so but in domestic violence i imagine people beating their wives which i feel like yo this <laughs> i like, i'm not a fighting person um but there's a big moral difference between someone who has a fight with their brother and someone who punches their wife i i, I do they really both belong under domestic violence i feel like one's assault which is different i mean i guess both technically true but it's like it, it's different if someone's like yeah i got convicted of domestic violence they'll be like oh my god you piece of and it's like no no i had a fight with my brother and someone called the police <laughs> 
1999, Derek was arrested for demanding money with menaces. Oh my. Sounds, it sounds like a very British crime, doesn't it? For anybody who doesn't know what this means, demanding money with menaces is a form of blackmail in England and Wales. Specifically, it's a form requiring the threat of some serious violence. So it's like, all right, give me some money or I'm going to beat your head in. Derek was arrested but never charged. He had been, had he been charged, he'd faced a prison term with a maximum of 14 years. Oh, this is a serious crime. Due to the severity of the crime, he would also have lost his shotgun license had he been convicted. Honestly, though. If you're like in court, they're like, well, the most we can send you to prison for is 14 years. And you're like, oh, okay, that's not too bad. And we'll take away your shotgun license. No! Doesn't say da- different. <laughs> the attack. Closing out the last millennium gave Derek much to look back on. He had once had a well-paying job at a nuclear power plant, fulfilling every 10-year-old Simpson enthusiast's dream. He had a nice family, children, and a good home. But he also had had three run-ins with the police and suffered a back strain injury as a result of his job. It was time for change. In 1999, on the eve of the millennium, Derek purchased a taxi and got a license. However, unfortunately for Derek, the 2000s were not about to be any better for him. On the 4th of October 2002, the first of two crucial events would take place. Derek was enjoying an evening out in Workington on the west coast of Cumbria. On this night out, he went clubbing at the Fusion nightclub. The exact events of the evening are unclear. We do know that one of the other clubgoers took a dislike to Derek and knocked him on the floor before kicking him repeatedly in the face. Oh my god, you psycho. It's like, okay, get into a fight. Why are you kicking someone in the face after knocking them over? That's some psycho behavior. He went to hospital with a broken nose and a swollen upper lip. However, Derek's dealings in the 90s had shaped his outlook on life. Primarily as a result of the theft conviction back in 1990, Derek had grown to distrust the entirety of the justice system, with police naturally being the focus of this distrust. Wait, really? The focus of my distrust would be who the fuck judge sent me to prison or gave me a 12-month suspended sentence for stealing a plank of wood. This is a failure not of the police. The police arrested him for stealing some wood, which seems a bit extreme, but he works at a nuclear power plant. Okay, I think it's too much, but it's fine. It's not fine. It's too much, but I get why it happens. And then the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service, they should have been like, obviously we're not prosecuting this. This is insane. Um, caution him and let him go. Or uh, And then even if it got to the courts, the courts would be like, what are you doing? Why are we wasting our time on this? Let's get this thrown out now. Uh, that's a failure of the the, the, the CPS and the judges and the, and the court system, not the police, in my opinion. This caused him to refuse to attend court and led to him being forced to withdraw his complaint. This meant that despite the facts not being in dispute, the other man was able to knock him on the floor, kick him, and just walk away. Anybody can imagine what this would do to your outlook on life, especially after everything that had happened to him. On the 7th of October 2007, the most crucial events occurred. Derek was working a normal evening as a taxi driver. In the back of his cab were four passengers, and once he took them to their stop, he turned and asked for payment. The passengers became enraged and refused to pay, which led to Derek getting out of the taxi in an attempt to remove them (laughs) how do you get i don't understand how you could become enraged in that situation it's like yo you have to pay they'd be like outrageous do you know who i am (laughs) no (laughs) pay me what the 
It's not clear what happened due to Derek not having any memory of the following events, but what we do know is that Derek was beaten repeatedly, suffering a serious laceration to his head. What the? Derek is running into way too many psychos. He had been attempted. He had been admitted to hospital overnight, where he received treatment for this laceration and had to receive repairs to his dentures and other teeth, which had also been damaged. Derek suffered from subsequent pain in the neck and shoulder area after this attack, aggravated by traffic collision. Aggravated by a traffic collision that he was involved in in 2009. Derek's friends have stated since that 2007 changed him profoundly. He put on more weight and was reported as constantly being nervous and anxious. Derek also had always been a wildlife enthusiast, taking yearly trips abroad to go scuba diving and taking frequent walks in the Cumbrian Hills. However, these trips became more infrequent since he was attacked. I think it's relevant to draw attention to this attack. We frequently discuss the difference between nature and nurture. This, however, opens up a scary possibility. What if you hit your head really hard, like when getting out of a taxi? What if this is all it took? to turn you into a murderer. At this point, you might end up feeling sorry for Derek, but I implore you to hold those feelings for now until you see what's to come. Saying that, though, these things would still get worse for Derek before the decade was over. All these years of hardship were building up on Derek. The camel's back was straining, but it was yet to break. And then came the last straw. After his childhood sweetheart left him in 1990, Derek moved back to live with his elderly mother. Many of his friends described his relationship with her as one of his last truly important relationships. There was much anxiety and stress born from this when in the early 2000s his mother had to be moved to a nursing home. However, once there, she was cared for by many of Derek's relatives. In 2009, Mary Bird, Derek's mother, was diagnosed with late-stage cancer. As a result, she decided it was time to take action, which as a former worker in family law solicitors, I encourage everybody to do and arranged to write a will. It was at this point that we meet our first non-antagonist recurring character, Kevin Commons, who was called upon to help Mary draft the will. This would become central to the storm to come. If you're that old and you don't have a will, you should really have a will by the time you're that old. <laughs> I say that, it's like, I'm, well, I'm not that old. I hope I'm not going to die anytime soon. But I also know I should probably, probably get a will. Probably should sort that out. <laughs> It's just one of those things that you really don't want to do because you're like, oh man, it just makes me think about death all the time. And I'm already a horrible pessimist, as we've already described. You'd be like, oh, the good times aren't going to last forever because eventually I'm going to die. Oh. Now, just before we continue with today's episode, let me tell you about today's wonderful sponsor, Shopify. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big business. So upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly. Why is that word so impossible to say? They could stay informed. Scaling your business is a journey of endless possibilities. It's brilliant how companies like shopify have taken something that i don't know 10 years ago 20 years ago you'd need to hire someone for like tens of thousands of dollars or pounds to build a website and then you'd have all of this complicated integration stuff and now it's just like boom over you go to shopify and up you are good to go i think i've told this story in a in a read before but i had a friend of mine who ran like a, an online shop and when he first got started it was some enormously complicated procedure and then later on he was like shopify come along and everything is that i used to pay an extortionate amount of money for is now done by shopify at a way better price and uh just 
basically um it, it's it's a lot better because they built it for like a bigger group of people this is off the talking points uh what do i have to say shopify has all the tools and resources that make it easy for any business to succeed from down the street to around the globe yes shopify powers millions of businesses from first sale to full scale reach your customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apping apps including facebook instagram tiktok pinterest and more reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps including facebook instagram tiktok pinterest and more and synchronize your online and in-person sales i didn't even know that was possible that's brilliant so you could do in-person sales with shopify not just online so if you do run like a bricks and mortar store well that's just super easy isn't it look go to shopify.com casual it's all lowercase and you'll get a free 14-day trial and get your and you'll get full access to shopify's entire suite of features grow your business with shopify today again shopify.com casual shopify.com casual nature or a whack over the head as mentioned already, in 2007, Derek was assaulted. His entire personality changed as a result, which built upon the heavy distrust he felt for the police and government in general. When we add it, when we add in all the difficult components, so far, what do we get? We get an anxious and paranoid man, an anxious and paranoid man with four guns. Derek was not only anxious to the arrangements of his mother's will, but in recent months leading up to June 2010, he'd been receiving letters from Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs (HMRC). HMRC, for any listeners or viewers who are luckily unaware, is the UK's tax office. If you report to be self-employed but do not post the proper taxes, it is, a- it is HMRC who are going to be chasing you up. They're almost universally hated for this fact, and more... <laughs> They're almost universally hated for the fact that more often than not, if they suspect you owe them money, they'll contact your bank and compel the transfer of money before contacting you? Really? I kind of feel that they should be like, hey, how about you pass that money you owe us? <laughs> Rather than like, we took that money. <laughs> Leading to thousands of cases each year where people have wrong money wrongly taken by HMRC. Derek had been receiving letters from them questioning his low reporting of income in the months leading up to June 2010. The result of these letters led Derek to contact his twin brother David, who then contacted David uh, Kevin Commons, the solicitor who worked in the Workingham area. Commons recommended David contact an accountant to help with issues. Uh, which meant that Derek was passed along to Peter Elwood, who would work as Derek's accountant from then on. From this point forward, Elwood is where we get much of our insight into how Derek was feeling up to June 2010. On review of Derek's finances, Elwood advised Derek that HMRC was uh, investigation was simply a routine audit. It was discovered by Elwood in these exchanges that Derek was in fact worried that he'd be arrested for misreporting tax. These fears were soon addressed by Elwood, who pointed out that in England and Wales, misreporting tax can lead you to be taken to jail only if it was in far greater amounts. This did, But this was the dude who previously got a 12-month suspended sentence for stealing a plank of wood. So, yeah, it'd also be like, F- you, man, are you sure? <laughs> like, I stole that wood, and then my whole life went to sh-. Are you sure? This did little to stem Derek's paranoia. Significantly, he became paranoid that his brother, David, and the family solicitor Commons were conspiring against him. As a result of being informed of this paranoia, Elwood took the decision to arrange a meeting between Derek and Commons. I must say at this point, when an individual you are dealing with is highly paranoid that another individual is out to get them, telling that other individual that they're planning a meeting hardly seems like the right course of action. Either way, the meeting was booked for the 2nd of June, 2010. The carnage begins. 
In the early hours of the 2nd of June 2010, Derek gathered his belongings. He had finally been referred to somebody who could help him, but the person who he trusted had told Commons the man he believed to be conspiring with his own twin brother against him. Derek decided that he had nothing to live for. He never left a note or a manifesto. He just left his house around midnight carrying a 20-gauge Breda shotgun, a 20-gauge Winchester over-under shotgun, a 12-gauge Fisher side-by-side shotgun, and a bolt-action rifle fitted with a telescopic sight. He carried 900 rounds of 22 caliber ammunition and an unknown amount of shotgun shells. In his mind, Derek was choosing who his first victim would be. He eventually chose the one individual at the center of his current predicaments, the one he felt most abandoned by, his twin brother David. This is Something happened to him because he became like unreasonably paranoid. And this just boiled over into this. And I don't feel like the man throughout the beginning of our story was an overly paranoid individual. So I am really inclined. I mean, it doesn't excuse. I don't know. Let's not go into that moral territory. Um, something happened to his brain at some point because he became way more paranoid. It's not known what, when he arrived at his brother's house, but it is known that before 12.45am uh, that he had begun the massacre by shooting his brother. The purpose of this show is not to overindulge in the detail of the brutal acts which we cover, but instead to inform, so I've attempted to find a balance in the telling of these events. Derek killed his brother at point-blank range using his 22 caliber rifle. The rifle held 11 cartridges at a time, and he emptied an entire magazine into his brother. The post-mortem would later uncover that most of these were fired after his brother had already fallen. The amount of times Derek shot into into David uh, shows how shattered and full of hate his mind must have been. David's body was not discovered for another 10 hours, being found when he failed to turn up for work. It's at this point that we can only think as to what was going through Derek's head. He had killed who he saw as the key plotter against him, his own twin. So what did he do next? Hand himself in or maybe continue? Again, we can't be sure how he thought of these questions. But we do know that five hours later, he decided how he would answer them. At 5.14 a.m., Derek arrived at Mowbray Farm, the house of Kevin Commons. We know he was there at this exact time as he was picked up on local CCTV as he entered the area. Derek was driving his taxi, a move that would come to have the most profound, unfortunate results in just a short time. Several eyewitnesses passed by the car while Derek was in it, reporting that he had positioned himself on the road leading up to the farm. None of these witnesses report seeing a firearm or thinking of the activity as suspicious. After all, it was just a cabbie waiting for his fare. At approximately 10 a.m., Commons drove down his drive, making his way to work. Unfortunately, he'd never make it out of that drive. When approaching the end, Derek fired his shotgun twice, damaging the windscreen and roof of Commons' car, shards from the windscreen injuring Commons' shoulder. From there, Commons fled his car, running for the house. Derek pursued Commons and is reported to have performed an execution-star killing on him with two shots from his 22 caliber rifle. Derek was spotted leaving the drive at 10.10 a.m., making his way home. It's at this point of time that the police were alerted to the unfolding situation. A neighbor of Commons, Susan Rooney, had witnessed the initial interaction between Derek and Commons, where he stopped the car with two shotgun shots, calling the police at 10.13 a.m. Now, at this point, clock enthusiasts may have noticed that there are 13 minutes between the initial shots and the phone call to the police. The reasoning for this is just one of the unfortunate details of this police call. The delay was caused because after Rooney had spotted the initial interaction, she sought advice from her neighbors before deciding what to do. This may draw criticism for many viewers and listeners, criticism I can wholeheartedly understand, but before anybody criticizes her too harshly, a few things should be considered. Yeah, I mean, you don't know what's going through her mind. She just heard these gunshots. It, she's like, Do, uh, but you know, I don't feel like most people, like, it's, this isn't a situation that you go through every day. It's like, you didn't 
you're not really sure what happens. You're like, should I call the police? Was this, I don't know. I don't want to waste their time. This feels like a very British thing. (laughs) I don't want to waste their time. Although, wait a minute. She didn't just hear this. She fully saw it. And at that point, so there's a dude shooting a car with a shotgun. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, no, no. You're not wasting the police's time with that one. You gotta just call, right? (laughs) Firstly, witnessing a shooting can be a very traumatic event. It should be easy to understand that a person may not act entirely rationally after witnessing such a shooting. Secondly, in the area where the shooting of commons had taken place, incidents of BB guns being misused was common. Yo, you sure a man shoot a car twice with a f***ing shotgun? You'd be like, oh, well, you know, kids and boys will be boys. (laughs) Holy s***. Lady, this was a fact that would shape much of the police's response and could explain Rooney's rather lax response as well. It's first, first, finally, it's known that Cumbria is a large elderly population. A lot of people older and a lot of older, a lot of older people go to Cumbria to retire, with the average age being 44.8 years compared to 40 for the rest of the UK in general. Rooney's age has not been published anywhere I could find. It's possible that if she is older, this could have been this could have impaired her reaction to witnessing this first shooting. This consideration is one I charitably assigned to Rooney based on the remainder of her 999 call. In fact, many commenters have consistently listed Susan Rooney's call as one of the biggest cock-ups of the entire operation in dealing with Derek Burt. Even the official police report concluded that Rooney's call was a major failing in the operation. However, it should be noted that the report also concluded that Rooney should not be blamed for this failing. So the police must also have done something wrong as well, because they... Liam said that the BB guns were pretty common, so maybe this lady didn't describe it properly over the phone. And then the police were like, oh, boys will be boys, because they're not like, they don't know the extent of it. Although, again, a dude shot a car twice with a shotgun. Shotgun go bang. Big bang. The phone call began with Rooney making unclear statements. She began by telling the operator that the address is the tip road. For clarification, the operator control room was responsible for the entirety of West Cumbria, about 200 square kilometers. After the operator managed to work out the address through questioning, Rooney then made the statements that would mar the entire police response. She reported that she had heard an air rifle shot from a fella in a yellow taxi. An air rifle does not sound like a shotgun lady. Derek's vehicle was a silver Citroen with taxi written in yellow on the side. As mentioned earlier, BB guns and air rifles were common in the area. As a result, police control decided not to dispatch armed police, and instead, an unarmed unit was assigned to investigate what was going on, and a dispatch unit was put on alert for a yellow taxi. Before anybody criticizes this police response regarding the lack of armed police, it should be noted that there were only two armed police units available for the entirety of West Cumbria a factor that would have many horrific effects over the next two hours. Yeah, I feel like this is just such a British... There must be other countries as well where the police don't carry guns. But it's like the police don't... In the UK, there's no guns. They don't have guns. That's a special police, and they come if they're needed. At 10.27am, the police call centre decided to call back Rooney to gather more details. In this call, no new information was gained. Despite this unlucky start, other witnesses had by now called in, reporting that a shotgun had been what was used. Finally, the police were able to deploy armed police units to try and catch this yellow taxi. Unfortunately, Derek had left the scene 20 minutes before. These 20 minutes would allow him to embark on the carnage that would soon unfold. It was three minutes later at 10.30 that unarmed officers located the body of Kevin Commons and armed police were deployed. The Horror in Whitehaven 
At around 10.15 a.m., Derek arrived at one of his friends' house, uh, having given his friend one of his more modern shotguns the evening before. Good lord, man, how many shotguns do you have? After knocking on the door, his friend's wife answered and was asked to fetch his shotgun. This shotgun, although unnamed in the police reports, is noted to have been more accurate and had a higher rate of fire than the guns he had on him. Luckily for everyone in Cumbria, his wife had no access to the gun safe, which meant Derek was denied his mode of murdering even more people. Following this denial, he simply drove away. At 10.25 a.m., Derek arrived at a taxi rank in Duke Street, Whitehaven, where he normally found himself on normal business days. Derek arrived with the target in mind. He had driven to the taxi rank, believed to have the intention of hunting fellow cabbie Darren Rucastle. Rucastle was a notable taxi driver who had been accused of poaching fares by the other drivers and had also been accused of playing tricks on other drivers. It should be noted that one of these tricks included slashing Derek's tires, which could be the reasoning behind why Derek was so angered with Rucastle in particular. Yeah, this guy, Rucastle, sounds like a bell. Despite all of this, there is no way Rucastle deserved or knew what was about to happen. Obviously not. <laughs> it's like, he slashed my tires, so I shot him. And it's like, alright, he's a dead for slashing your tires, but what the fuck? What are you doing? At 10.27am, Bird called Rucastle over to his taxi by calling out his name repeatedly. As Rucastle bent down to speak to Derek, he fired a single shot from his shotgun. As Rucastle fell, he fired a second shot at him, and it was determined that Rucastle died as, as a result of both gunshot wounds. From there, Derek drove to the front of the taxi queue, where he then fired his rifle at Donald Reed, another taxi driver. Reed was hit once in the back and fell to the floor and began to crawl toward Rucastle's body. Derek then got out of the car and began to prowl towards Reed, raising his gun. However, one, looker, one onlooker with far bigger balls than I'll ever have called for Derek to stop, and he did, and quickly returned to his car. Oh my god, dude. <laughs> that guy has balls of steel. What were you thinking? I mean, he's not... It's it's amazing that he was just like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll stop a drive away. I, I'd just be like, and then he shot him. Isn't that how everyone expects that to go? Holy sh**, balls of steel. It was this pause that allowed many of the witnesses to flee the scene, but unfortunately for Donald Reed, Derek had circled around the queue with his taxi and fired twice more with his rifle, aiming for Reed. Fortunately, Derek missed both of his shots before leaving the area. Donald Reed would later recover fully from his injuries. Good. At 10.31am, Derek encountered another taxi driver, Paul Wilson, who was known as a friend of Derek for his morning walk. Derek called him over to his car and shot him once in the face with his shotgun before leaving the scene. Wilson would also somehow make a full recovery from his injuries. This shooting, in particular, resulted in the local Whitehaven police station being informed of what was going on. Wait, did he just shot his friend? Uh, it seems like this guy was on some, although in super paranoid and insanely wrong, spree. He was going after people who he thought, incorrectly, had or disproportionately, had betrayed him or got him some way. So why is he just shooting his mate in the face? The duty sergeant made the call to all police that a suspect vehicle had been identified. All the officers were informed what it looked like and told not to approach it. Promptly on the instruction not to approach it, noted that the police station practically emptied as police rushed towards the taxi rank to render emergency first aid to those who needed it. Good. Nice to see. One of those police officers, unnamed in reports, ran into Paul Goodwin, who, who had witnessed the Whitehaven shootings. The police officer was promptly invited into Goodwin's car, who then began chasing Derek's vehicle. While Goodwin focused on staying behind Derek, the police officer radioed in support, and quickly a police van gave chase. Despite being in a car chase, Derek had his mind set. As he passed a taxi, he fired a single shotgun shot, seriously injuring taxi driver Terry Kennedy and his passenger Emma Percival. It was at this time that Paul Wilson, the man who had been shot in the face, was brought to the local police station. Wait. Why is he not in hospital? He got shot in the face! When he got to the police station, he quickly identified the gunman as Derek Bird. 
Shortly after the shooting at Kennedy's taxi, Derek took a sharp turn, attempting to re-enter Whitehaven Town Centre. This maneuver was denied by a bravely positioned police van that was placed right between the town centre and Derek. When he noticed he was trapped by the van, Derek coldly and slowly raised his shotgun at the two unarmed officers before firing. Both officers managed to avoid being hit by ducking down just in time. Unfortunately, this shot had served its purpose as by the time the officers looked up, Derek was long gone. Shortly down the road was a five-way junction, and as such, the police had lost the gunman. By now, the police knew who the killer was. They knew what vehicle he was in, and they knew what he was armed with. It was only now they realized how much danger they were in. Not only were they dealing with an individual who had actively used guns for 30 years, which was significant as it meant that Derek knew each road each turn like the back of his hands. It was at 10.45am that the armed response vehicles ARVs arrived in the area. Rather than rendezvousing with each other, they were instead ordered to hunt and confront Derek. There was no misunderstanding on the part of the police. The shooting was far from over. At the same time, we encounter our second cock-up of the day. The local operations commander ordered all police officers to switch to a single radio channel, which was common practice to allow all officers to be actively aware of the unfolding situation. However, it was noted in reports since the incident that this decision resulted in all the requests for backup and ambulances going out on the same channel, hampering the response to what would become over 30 separate crime scenes. Yeah, it's a cock-up, but it's not they did everything by the book it wasn't it was just okay we it's unfortunate and hopefully procedural change afterwards this isn't someone's fault it's just unfortunate it was now that the third cock-up was encountered the ambulance service was reported to have many ambulances available yet the duty commander for the ambulance dispatch held back many ambulances believing that the shooter would soon be contained Despite this duty commander's belief, this was not the case as many police officers were left with seriously injured people and were unable to leave them alone. Wait, I don't understand if the shooting if the shoot is going to be contained fairly shortly. Oh, okay, so they don't want to send their ambulances out into a potentially risky area with a shooter because he thinks they're going to be captured pretty quickly and then the ambulances go out, can go out and save the people. I kind of think the ambulances should go out anyway. People have been shot. I mean, it's that's I don't want to say like ambulance people should be driving into dangerous situations, but I'm pretty sure like the ambulance people, it's all the time and you should, there's people who've been shot, the ambulances should go, right? No, I don't know. Oh God. Most commenters agree that what we previously covered were the targeted attacks of Derek Bird, as he knew most of the victims. What comes next, however, are the random attacks. At 10.48, Derek encountered Jacqueline Williamson, who was walking her dog. He asked Williamson for directions, but she managed to spot his gun. Knowing she had to leave, she used a luckily timed pull on the leash from her dog and managed to get away. From there, Derek continued down the road to Edremont. Susan Hughes was leaving Edremont Town Centre when Bird shot her twice with a shotgun from his car. In reports by witnesses, Derek is said to have gotten out of his car and executed her after a struggle. After re-entering his car, he encountered Kenneth Fishburne, also executing him with a single shot from his shotgun after knocking Fishburne to the ground. After Fishburne was murdered, Derek encountered Leslie Hunter. He invited Leslie to his car window and shot him. Despite this proximity, Leslie survived both of his injuries. At 10.57am, Bird passed 14-year-old Ashley Glaister. She was also called over to his car, but managed to spot a gun and ducked just in time. As he was running down a hill to get away, Derek fired another shot at her, but he missed again, allowing Glaister to get away. I mean, obviously, I don't want to say, like, I don't understand this. I don't understand, like, and say that I understand the beginning bit where he shot his brother and solicitor and all of this stuff, but no matter how twisted and wrong the motivation was at least there was some motivation now we're just talking why is he doing this who are these people to him 
He started off as like he started off this video as a reasonable person who then had some problems and then killed it's just gone crazy downhill. It was now that Derek left the main roads and entered the village of Carlton at around 11 a.m., the same time as when David Bird's body was discovered. Okay, so they're just discovering his brother's body as he didn't show up for work. Now on the small roads, Derek's victims had little chance of escape. Unfortunately, at 11.05 a.m., he ran into Isaac Dixon on one of these extremely small roads and murdered him with two close-range shotgun shots. Derek then made his way to a nearby village of Wilton, where he would murder Jennifer and James Jackson, injuring Jennifer's friend Christine Hunter-Hall. Each one of these victims had been shot in drive-by style shootings. From here, Derek's movements became unclear as he disappeared into the countryside roads. On one of these roads, he passed prominent rugby player Gary Purdom. In witness reports, it said that Gary did not see Derek approach from behind him as he was murdered with a single shot to the head. Here, Derek would turn onto the A595 road to see scale, which would become a host to the bloodiest part of the massacre. Oh my god, I, I, I do remember this in the news back in, when was this, 2010? Um, I do remember this vaguely. Gosh, I don't remember there being so many victims, though. I kind of keep thinking that this is where it ends, but... No. On his approach to Seascale, Derek crossed paths with James Clark, a local estate agent who was returning from an appointment. There is evidence that Bird rammed Clark off the road before performing another execution-style shooting. Whilst fleeing the scene, yet again Derek approached a one-way tunnel with a Land Rover driven by Harry Berger on the other side. Derek let him pass through the tunnel before shooting him twice with a shotgun. Berger would survive with serious injuries, having to undergo major plastic surgeries. Only a few minutes later, three ARVs, armed response vehicles, arrived at the scene of Berger's shot-up car. The car itself was in the way of the ARVs and would have to be moved aside through help from pedestrians before the ARVs continued. Berger did not receive any help from the ARVs, as their focus was to follow out the previous order to hunt Derek Bird. I mean, fair. I mean, fair. Like, he needs an ambulance. He doesn't need a policeman. Maybe the policeman knows first aid. Probably does. But it's like, they got to go get this guy. While in Seascale, Derek began the bloodshed on Drigg Road, which was just off the seafront. It was on this road that he murdered cyclist Michael Pike after ramming him, before calling yet another victim, Jane Robinson, over to his window, killing her instantly with a single shot. It was at this point that witnesses reported seeing Bird driving erratically. It's also here that the full impact of the first cock-up becomes painfully clear. While leaving Drigg Road, Bird drove past one of three ARVs mentioned earlier. Due to the description given of his car and its erratic nature, they believed him to be a civilian caught up in the chaos and let him go. Wait, what? How? Oh, because the description of the car was incorrect, right? However, the ARV officers soon worked out their mistake and turned to give chase, but again, the taxi man proved his skill with the Cumbrian roads, and they lost Bird at a set of temporary roadworks. Derek had now been located by police officers, but unfortunately for the officers, Derek knew, and we all know, what an animal does when it's cornered. On the way through Seascale to the Exdel Valley, Derek shot Jackie Lewis once with his rifle, which is notable, as she had no memory of the incident and lacked any wound, only discovering she had been shot when passers-by told her. Luckily for Lewis, it appeared that the bullet had ricocheted off her skull. At 11.50am, Derek passed Fiona Moretta, who was leaving a nearby pub. He called her over to the window of his car, and, as he had done so many other times before, he shot her once. She managed to survive her injuries and immediately ran behind his car to get away. Derek initially began to reverse after her before giving up and driving off in a rage. Come midday, there were over 40 separate ARVs hunting Derek Bird, having been called in from surrounding counties, slowly closing in on him. While on the outskirts of Seascale, Derek arrived in the neighborhood of Boot, where he fired at people on the nearby beach, knowing it would be hard for them to run in the sand. Fortunately, he missed all the shots on innocent families just trying to enjoy a day out at the beach. 
A short distance from the beach, Derek fired upon Nathan, Joes, and Samantha Christie, uh, causing injuries to both. Both of them survived the incident. Derek then encountered Craig Ross, a man who was considered by most to be a distant friend of Bird. Ross was driving on the opposite direction of Derek when he flagged the man down. Derek then told Ross to drive away. Ross promptly did. Derek then fired a single shot at Ross, but thankfully he missed. Time to give him the boot. From here, Derek continued down the narrow roads of the boot. The noose around his neck was tightening. At this point, it had heard hundreds of police sirens in the distance. While traveling across Dr. Bridge and the approaching road, he rammed his car into several vehicles, and as a result, Derek's front left wheel came off his car. He, in a short time, got out of the car and reportedly inspected it. We know this information thanks to two very lucky holidaymakers who had not watched the news that fateful morning and stayed ignorant of that day's carnage. They both made their way towards Derek as he inspected the wheel and offered their help, but it was quickly rejected. After this, I don't know. Un- this, it's, it, it seems so random that some people he'll just let go and some people he will shoot, seemingly for no reason at all. I mean, the letting go and the shooting. After this, the couple watched Derek fetch his rifle from the boot of his car, and he made his way back across the bridge. It would be nice to say the bird went to jail for the remainder of his pitiful existence. I know how this one ends. I remember this uh, new story. Um, pitiful existence, or perhaps that a copper got a little bit overzealous with a taser and some duct tape. Alas, there's no true justice in the world. Derek Bird's body was discovered in a wooded area at 12.45pm, with just one shotgun shot to the head. The time it took from the police being alerted to Derek by Susan Rooney until its conclusion was only 2 hours and 32 minutes. That is the same time it would take to watch Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. In that short time, the peaceful Cumbrian reality had been shattered. Shortly after Derek's death, his home was searched. They found 750 rounds of 22 caliber ammunition, but no shotgun ammo, leading the police to believe that he had fired all the ammo on the rampage. As mentioned prior, there was no note, no letter, no manifesto, not even a Twitter post that explained the carnage that took place on that day. Many commenters have made the statement that Derek Bird embarked on his rampage for the fact that he was in dispute with his brother over a will. The BBC even reported at the time that it was his late mother's. This report was the first news Derek's mother's received to her son being the killer. Oh my god, really? BBC? Don't the police have to like... Don't they have to tell the families first? My god. The story of Derek Bird is not that of a psychopath or a sadist, nor was it of a man who simply snapped because of one singular act in an infuriating, blind rage. It was of a man who seems like he had a serious chance of not being in his right mind. In the police report on the matter, they concluded that Derek was of sane mind at the time of the massacre, but from what we've seen, specifically the comments around the 2007 act, can we really be sure of that? I don't know. I don't think... I mean, it's so hard because you can say, was he of sane mind? He went around shooting strangers. I don't think anyone in their sane mind does that. Is it sane to the level of criminal responsibility? Yeah, maybe. Um, probably. But he was clearly paranoid. There was clearly something wrong with him. And just to ignore that as part of the story seems very odd. Despite this, just because Derek Bird may have had a mental abnormality which contributed towards his killing spree does not mean that anyone should give him any pity. No, I mean, he murdered a lot of innocent people. He killed 11 innocent, peop- 11 innocent people and injured another 12, most of which were targeted only through pure randomness and at several points even attempted to kill children. Derek Bird was angry at the world, and so he embarked on the most random acts of violence that he could aim for. On every casual criminalist, we focus on the criminals for obvious reasons, but it would like to but I would like to end today's by listing everybody who was killed or injured by Derek Bird. The deaths. David Bird, fifty two. Kevin Commons, sixty. Darren Rewcastle, forty three. Susan Hughes, fifty seven. 
Kenneth Fishburne, 71. Jennifer Jackson, 68. James Jackson, 67. Isaac Dixon, 65. Gary Purdom, 31. James Jamie Clark, 23. Michael Pike, 64. Jane Robinson, 66. Also injured, Donald Reed, 57. Paul Wilson, 34. Ted Ken- Terry Kennedy, sorry, 53. Emma Percival, 20. Leslie Hunter, 59. Christine Hunter Hall, 43. Harry Berger, 40. Jacqueline Lewis, 70. Fiona Moretti, 51. Nathan Jones, 25. And Samantha Christie, age 30. This is the first time I've written for Casual Criminalist, and it is the first spree killing on this channel, at least the time of writing. If any viewers or listeners have any feedback, then please comment. I'll be sure to read them. And thank you very much to Liam. Uh, there's three appendixes. We'll just do them quickly. The entire details of the Derek Bird shooting can be found bar on a police report accessible through the Wayback Machine. You can also find a link to this on Wikipedia. If anybody would like to learn more about what happened, or specifically the police response, then I strongly recommend looking into this document. Although be warned, you can find far gorier details than we reported here. Appendix 2. The Cumbrian Massacre was, at the time, the single largest loss of life in a firearms incident since the 1996 Dunblane School Massacre. It led the government to investigate the current restrictions around shotguns and introduce a legal limit to the amount of shotgun ammunition you're allowed to buy. Further changes would be introduced when, exactly one month later, Raoul Moat, a convicted criminal, shot David Rathbrand in Northumbria. Police at the time feared a Derek Bird star spree, spurred on by threats from Moat himself, but luckily that never materialized. Appendix 3. The shooting had about the reaction you'd expect in the UK. It resulted in the cancellation of an episode of the popular soap Coronation Street and criticism of pop star Lady Gaga. The episode being cancelled for containing a story arc involving a shootout and Gaga being criticised for her performance carrying out her... and Gaga being criticised for her performance carried out the same day as the attack in Manchester. Gaga's performance involved the mock-up of a murder by firearm on stage. Finally, we all know that whenever there is a tragedy in the news, there will be a dumb journalist. Giles Corrin, a journalist for the Times, tweeted out that Derek should have read a copy of his anger management book. Giles later apologized for the tweet. Dude, that is like wildly inappropriate, my man. Someone should be reading your tweets before you are allowed to post them. This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you uh, enjoy this show, obviously I don't ask you to enjoy the content. It's terribly brutal uh, please do leave a review that would be fantastic if you're watching on youtube a like a subscribe would be most welcome and thank you for watching seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.